0: All right, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, go with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. The book of Isaiah, kind of in the middle of the Bible, chapter 53. We've been on a series in the season of Lent. Lent is a season of 40 days where the church historically has uh, used this time to repent, to place a greater emphasis on repentance, a greater emphasis on fasting, a greater emphasis on preparation as we look towards the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And as we've been through this see, uh, season of Lent, we've been focusing on different aspects on how to uh, see the cross, different perspectives of the cross. And we, could, we would not exhaust the message of the cross. I mean, we could preach on it 52 weeks in a row and beyond, and we still have something to say about the cross. And so what we're doing just for the season of Lent is to whet our appetite, to help us to see the various perspectives of the cross that are important for our spiritual Formation. And over the course of the past few weeks, we've been focusing on the seriousness of sin and the scandal of the cross. Last week, I talked about, oh, a couple of weeks ago, the cross as blood sacrifice. We talked about the, uh, Christus Victor, Christ the victorious one. That was last week. Today, we're going to talk about the substitutionary love of God, the substitutionary love of God. And so we'll be in Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse number one, hear the word of the Lord. Us all. I want to talk about the substitutionary love of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you grant us a fresh revelation of your love today through your cross? May we see the power of substitution. May we once again see the power of your sacrifice. And may our lives be transformed as we live in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen. Amen. Substitutionary love. The idea and practice of substitutionary love, it fills our culture. It's common for many people to use the kind of language of substitution and sacrifice to express gratitude. Or a sense of passionate love for those that they care deeply about. Every year during the holidays, especially like Memorial Day or Veterans Day, uh, people thank men and women and the armed forces who have died for our freedom through what is often seen as sacrificial substitutionary love. We hear stories of heroism from people who stepped in front of another person to take a bullet for them substituting their life for another. You can argue that we all have a kind of substitutionary impulse, all of us. When my kids are sick, I often say, maybe as you say as well, that I wish I was sick instead of them. I wish it was me rather than them. I I could take it better than they can. And then my throat starts to hurt a couple of days after, and I go, oh, no. Why were these kids sick? Why didn't I wash my hands? Now, the idea of substitution and substitutionary love is found all over our culture, and it's found in many of our songs. Think of the worldly psalmist known as Bruno Mars. <laughs> Bruno Mars... I take it you've heard of him before, the Filipino-Puerto Rican with a little bit of Jewish background there. Uh, He has a song, and the lyrics are about substitutionary love. He says these words, "Uh, I'd catch a grenade for you. Throw my head on a blade for you. I'd jump in front of a train for you. You know I'd do anything for you. Then he goes, oh, 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 Uh, you know. I would go through all this pain. Take a bullet straight through my brain. Yes, I would die for you, baby, but you won't do the same. You should see me on karaoke night. I mean, I really go in here. Now, what this sounds, this sounds like a bad relationship, first of all. but, um, But what he's getting at is this idea of substitutionary love. Now the language of substitutionary love is all over our world. is all over songs, and of course, it's in the Bible. It's one of my favorite theologians, Karl Barth, who said that, in his opinion, the most important Greek New Testament word is this small word called "hooper," uh, hooper, and it's H-U-P-E-R. And he says that word means on behalf of, in behalf of. And he's simply calling our attention to the importance of what is known as the substitutionary love of Jesus. The world is rescued by an act of substitution. Our sins are forgiven by an act of substitution. And what I want to unpack today very simply for us is this simple truth that we are rescued by substitutionary love. That we all are rescued individually, and our world is rescued by substitutionary love. And this is the angle of the crucifixion that I want to focus on today, and this is where we come to Isaiah 53. When we pick up in our passage in Isaiah 53, uh, Israel is in exile. They're in Babylon. Babylon. And it was because of their rebellion, God and Israel had had a covenant together, they agreed to some things, and God said, if you don't agree to the covenant, you're part of the covenant, you're going to go into exile, your sins are going to punish you, and you are going to go into exile. And so Israel finds itself overtaken by two empires. They're overtaken, first of all, by the Assyrian Empire. And then a few years later, they're overtaken. The Assyrian Empire is overtaken by the Babylonian Empire. And so here Israel is 500 to 900 miles away in exile, away from their home, under a foreign power far away from their home. 500 miles is the distance from New York City to North Carolina. 900 miles is the distance from New York City to Florida. There's no JetBlue. There's no Amtrak. There's no American Airlines. They are far from their home. They don't know how they're going to get back. And they find themselves under an oppressive power. And so uh, Israel is in uh, exile. And so Isaiah writes A book to the people of God. In the first 40 chapters is Isaiah talking about judgment. He's talking about why they're in this situation. He's talking about uh, the covenant that they fail to live according to. And Isaiah 1 through 40 is consistently God's word of judgment to them. But then there's a shift in Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 goes from judgment to the theme of comfort and deliverance. And God is saying, although you have been judged for your sins, comfort is coming. Deliverance is coming. I will be the one to rescue you. And here we find in chapter 53 in this section of comfort and deliverance, one of the more remarkable passages in all of the Bible, and we are introduced to this suffering servant who delivers the people of God. Now, when you look in Isaiah 53, there are two ways to see the suffering servant. The first way to see the suffering servant is a suffering servant is a phrase to describe the nation of Israel as a whole, that the people of God has suffered in a particular way. But beyond it being uh, the the suffering servant as Israel, prophetically speaking, in light of the New Testament and the revelation of Jesus Christ, we begin to see that the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is none other talking, not talking, talking about none other than the Messiah, talking about none other than Jesus Christ. And so the first way to see it is it's the, it's the nation of Israel. The second way to see it, it's Jesus Christ. And both are true. In its original context, it's speaking about Israel. Prophetically speaking, it's speaking about Jesus Christ. And what we see in Isaiah 53 is that this servant, this suffering servant, is crushed under the weight of sin. Isaiah speaks about this suffering servant. And this suffering servant is one who has experienced the sting of sin, the sting of evil, the one who is crushed by the reality of a sinful world. And the words that are used to describe the life of the suffering servant are important to pay attention to. We see the degradation. We see the extent to which this servant suffers in a substitutionary kind of a way. And so what we see in in, uh, verse 3 are these words here. Would you mind just uh, moving over to the next slide there? It says, he was despised and rejected. Listen to the words of this suffering servant. Like a man suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. He took our pain and he bore our suffering. We, we When seen through the lens of Jesus, what Isaiah is saying is that the suffering servant has identified profoundly, as profoundly as he could with the reality of sin and the suffering of people. And so, in short, these words are about identification. Isaiah 53, the first few verses, verses 1 through 3, are about identification. And that's an important word for us to hold on to, identification. God identifies with our sin. God identifies with our suffering. God identifies with the evil of the world by being sinned against and fully embracing it in a substitutionary kind of a way. God says, I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to feel the sting of sin and evil. These words are about identification. Now, over the past few months, as I've mentioned before, there's been the Me Too movement that has taken the world by storm. And women all over this country and beyond have openly expressed the ways that they have been sexually assaulted, sexually sinned against, and little by little, women have come out publicly to identify with others in disregard. And in many cases, the reason why some women were able to have the courage to come forward and share their story it's because someone else identified with them. Someone else said, I've been there. I'm, you're not the only one. I, was, I experienced that too. And so because someone else was able to identify with them, little by little, it brought a sense of consolation. I'm not alone. And it brought a sense of courage that I can share my story as well. And so they, to, to, to know that someone can identify with your pain to know that someone knows what I've been through, knows what you've been through. There is consolation that comes when someone says, I know what it is like. And this is what we see in Isaiah 53. What we see in Isaiah 53 is, as it were, the first Me Too campaign. What God's saying, for those who have suffered, God says, Me Too. For those who have been despised, God says, Me Too. For those who have been rejected, God says, me too. For those who have been forsaken, God says, me too. For those who have been assaulted, God says, me too. And God's me too is to be a source of comfort for us. Why? Because there is relief when someone understands your pain. And the God of the universe comes down to take on our pain, to take on our suffering, essentially to say, you're not alone. Me too isn't this the power of support groups, the power of AA groups, the power of grief and loss groups, the power that when people gather together based on bereavement, based on loss, based on addiction, based on a particular struggle, common struggle in life, why do people connect so deeply to one another? Why do people have the perseverance to keep going? Because when someone can identify with your pain, it gives you hope that you're not alone, and you can continue. And other people say, I've been there, and I have made it. And we're able to say, if they made it, maybe I can make it as well. And so identification in the first three verses in Isaiah is incredibly important in our understanding of God, and it is to shape the way that we relate to each other as well. And this is an important note for us at New Life. And that is the the quality of our lives together flows out of our willingness to identify with each other's struggles. The quality of our life together flows out of our willingness to identify with each other's struggles. The church is not to be a place where we simply show our good sides. The church is not to be a place where we put forth an image of success. The church is not to be a place where we just talk about our stories of victory. The church is not to be a place where we hide our struggles. The church is not a museum for the holy. The church is a hospital for the sick. And we are to identify with each other's struggles. No one wants to be around someone who's always having a great day, who's never struggling, whose dishes don't get dirty, whose kids don't have a bad attitude, whose breath never stinks. We never, We don't like hanging around those kind of people. We want to be around people who have suffered. We want to be around people who knows how, who, who understands pain. We, we want to be around people who have been through something and made it out of it. We want words of identification. And in our life with God and in our life with each other, it's only when we become real about our struggles that we can really have true community with each other. And so God says in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, these are language, these are words of identification. I cannot tell you how relieved I feel when a fellow pastor shares his or her personal struggles, when a fellow pastor shares the temptation that they experience, when a fellow pastor shares about the ways that they want to give up. Why? Because as a pastor, there are times where I want to give up. As a pastor, there are times where I am tempted. As a pastor, there are times where I struggle, and when I hear someone, it's not just me. There's a sense of comfort that comes and a strength to endure. And so the suffering servant is one who profoundly enters into the sin of the world, identifying with our pain. Jesus knows your pain and struggles. Jesus identifies profoundly with them. Jesus is with you. And so whenever you feel rejection, whenever you feel forsaken, whenever you feel like you're suffering, we have a God who's experienced it all. A God who didn't remain up there disconnected from what we experience. A God who's come down to experience everything we have. This is language of identification. But as beautiful as the language of identification is in in verses 1 through 3, the people of God are still under the weight of sin. Identification only goes so far. You can tell someone, I identify with you, but it doesn't change what I'm facing necessarily. And so the people of God in verses 1 through 3 hear words of identification, but then they also hear words of substitution. In Isaiah 53, the people of God had to carry the weight of their sin and it crushed them. And it's the weight of sin that crushes our lives. And if the chapter ended at verse number three, we'd be encouraged but not delivered. We'd feel hope but not true salvation because although someone can identify with me that's wonderful, I still need something else. And God says, I know what that something else is. It's substitution. And so the people of God, if it were to end in verse 3, would still be under the weight of our our sin. And this is the reality of the world apart from God, apart from life in God. As I mentioned last week, the condition of evil and suffering in our world really comes as a result of two forces, demonic forces and human sin. And last week I emphasized demonic powers and demonic forces. Today I need to emphasize the human sin. And the two often are, are just combined together to create what we see in the world, the fallenness of our world. When you have a quick glance at our world and in our families and in our lives, we see the ways that we are crushed under the weight of sin. The same way that the people of God were in Isaiah 53. And often the sin of our own doing, just look at the world. Look at war in Syria. Look at mass shootings. Look at racial injustice. Look at global poverty. Look at your family. Look at the pain of divorce. Look at the uh, pain of relatives cut off from each other. Look at the pain of family members crushed by addiction. Look at your own life. Look at the ways that you have a nagging sense that your life doesn't matter, the sins that we just can't give up, the anxiety that often springs up on us. We are crushed by the weight of sin, the weight of a fallen world. We are crushed by it. And our lives are in sin apart from life with God. And there's nothing that we can do to get out of it. It was uh, Fleming Rutledge, the great theologian, who's, who's helped me to, to, to broaden my understanding of what it means to be in sin, to be crushed by the weight of sin, to be in sin. Typically, when church people hear, are you in sin, it's usually focused on sexual sin. Are you, you're in sin, sexual sin. And, but, but to be in sin is much more broader than a, a minor application of that. And she's helped me to see the condition, the deep condition of our lives apart from God. And this is what she says. I want you to just hold on to uh, this full passage here. She says, to be in sin, biblically speaking, means something more than wrongdoing. It means being catastrophically separated from the eternal love of God. It means to be on the other side of an impassable barrier of exclusion from God's heavenly banquet." It means to be helplessly trapped inside one's own worst self, miserably aware of the chasm between the way we are and the way God intends us to be. It means the continuation of the reign of greed, cruelty, rapacity, that is aggressive greed, and violence throughout the world. And the biggest cost of sin is death. It's what comes from it. Death, alienation, separation. The penalty of, of sin is alienation from God. And here's the thing no matter how hard we try, we can't get out of it ourselves. No amount of self effort will get us out of this situation ourselves. We need a power outside of ourselves to rescue us from it. Here's a, a simple and acute way to understand this I love playpins. I love playpins. I love putting my children when they were young in play pins. Just a, it's just a wonderful, wonderful. I wish I could do it today. I, my daughter's eight, my son. I just big play pins. Get in there, I guess that's prison, but you know just get in there and don't come out. And one of the things, I, I, I found a picture of my son Nathan when he was about a year and a half or so, him licking the playpen there. He's trying to get out. And he's in there. Don't move. You can't get out. And he's just, he's just in there. He's in the playpen. Now, he's too short at this point. He's not strong enough at this point. He can't get out of the playpen in his own strength. He needs someone else to... Pick him up out of the playpen, a place where he would consider sin because he wants to get out of it. He he needs someone else to pick him up out of it. Now, this is certainly an adorable way to talk about evil and wickedness and sin in the world. But hold on to the metaphor. We find ourselves often in kind of the playpen of sin. We are stuck in it. And we cannot get out on our own. There's no amount of strength, there's no amount of education, there's no amount of money, there's no amount of achievements that will get us out of the state of sin that we find ourselves in. We need a power outside of ourselves. And this is why verse 4 is so important, because God says, I will not just identify with you, I will substitute my life for you. I will not just say, I know what it feels like, I will raise you up out of the sin that holds you in bondage. And so in verse 4, it says these words, Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. Listen to the language of substitution. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The language moves from identification to substitution. And we need God's substitutionary love. We need to be taken out of the playpen of sin, as it were. We're not smart enough. We're not strong enough. We're not winsome enough to get us out of the playpen of sin. We need a power outside of ourselves. And Isaiah 53 says God has demonstrated his power through the act of substitutionary love. Substitution. Now, when the people of God heard these verses here, the the language of substitution, it would trigger them to sacrifice. It would trigger them to the sacrificial system. And the language of substitution was deeply embedded in that worldview, deeply embedded embedded in that religion, deeply embedded in that culture. Take, for example, the, uh, the holiday of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the people of God would gather. The high priest would go into the holies of holies. The curtain was closed, as it were. He would go in the holies of holies one time a year, the most holy place, to offer a a sin offering for the people of God. But as part of the Day of Atonement, beyond just the high priest going into the holies of holies, there was also uh, an act, a sacrificial act, pertaining to two goats to to demonstrate the forgiveness of God. To demonstrate the grace of God and this is where we get the word scapegoat from the high priest was instructed to take two goats and the, one of the goats would be sacrificed as a sin offering but after the goat was sacrificed as a sin offering the priest would then place his hands on the other goat and confess the sins of the people on the goat As it were, and there was, as it were, a kind of transferal of, of guilt, a transferal of sin from the people to the goat. And so after the high priest would sacrifice the first goat, he would then lay his hands on the second goat, confess all the sins, and then that goat can go never to come back. Could you imagine how happy that second goat was to go and then never come back? And, and they would go out into the wilderness. And the picture is this. When God forgives you and sends that goat away, your sins will not come back at you. You can move on with your life. God has already paid for it. God has already forgiven. And so one goat would be sacrificed. The other would be, would would, would, be, would escape. And this is what we see in Jesus. Jesus, as it were, is the personification of these two goats. He is one who is sacrificed, and he is one who is sent to the outer gates, as it were. And it is in the sacrifice of Jesus where we see Jesus bears our sin, and he bears it away. He takes it on, and he bears it away. And he, never to be seen again. Listen to this. Your past sin, your present sin, your future sin. Brothers and sisters, hear this. He bears it on his body and he bears it away. This is what Christ does. He is the personification of these two goats. And the cross essentially says, it should have been us. But in love, it was him. The substitutionary love of God. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus Christ tastes death for us. Now, when we think about the cross and think about the love of God, a couple of points of nuance are important to make, and I've been trying to make this throughout this series over the past few weeks, and I want to just say it again so that we just get clear on it. I want to say that first that Jesus doesn't die so that the Father will love you. It's important that you hear that. Jesus doesn't die so that the Father loves you. That kind of thinking, actually, it divides the Trinity. It's bad theology. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are actually one in redemption, one in will. They're not separated from each other. God has always loved you and will always love you. His love is unconditional. So it's important to know that Jesus doesn't die so that the Father... Loves you. Secondly, it's important to know that God the Father doesn't punish Jesus for our sins. He doesn't punish Jesus for our sins. It is God in Christ, God through Christ. God is the one who is dying on our behalf. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Christ. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's the book of Colossians. God does not punish Jesus for our sins. God takes on our sin and dies for us. It's very important to know that. God has, it, has loved you and will always love you. And as John Stott has said, we must not think of God punishing Jesus or of Jesus persuading God to love us. Hear this in a very succinct way. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. This makes all the difference in the world, brothers and sisters. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. And he loves us with the substitutionary kind of love. It was Karl Barth who said, He is the judge who is judged in our place. The judge judged in our place. The judge has every right to judge according to the standards and holiness of the judge. And yet it is this judge who who is judged in our place. Now, this is staggering. God becoming the sacrifice. God becoming the substitution. It's staggering because in, in pagan ancient context, it's always humans who seek to offer sacrifice to be in right relationship with God. And so humans would do all kinds of crazy stuff, sacrificing children, Offering whatever kind of so that they could ward off the anger of God, so that they can be in right relationship with God. But the gospel asserts that humans can do nothing to compensate for our sins. We cannot bribe God to forgive us. Instead of us making a sacrifice on our own, God takes it on Himself, God reconciles us to Himself. God in Christ, God through Christ, dies for our sin. And it is in his substitutionary love that we can now live freely. Because Christ takes on our sin, we can live freely. Now, I want you to hold on to this, the image of the goat for a moment. Because the goat leaves never to be found again. A picture of your sins. Your sins have been forgiven, never to be brought up again. Every time Satan brings it up to you, remember that God has forgiven you. Here's a, here's a simple way of holding on to this. Back in the last century, there was a guy named Elvis. <laughs> you know of him, yes? And there's a phrase that, about Elvis um, that whenever he finished a performance the announcer would say these words, Elvis has left the building. And it was a phrase that was used by public announcers that after he would perform a concert in order to disperse audiences from staying because they thought he was going to come back again to do an encore, they would stay there waiting for him. And the guy would say, listen, Elvis has left the building. Move on with your lives. Don't stay here any longer. He's not coming back. Elvis... Has left the building. Now, in a similar but different way, God is saying to us, through the image of the goat, listen, the goat has left the building. You can stay around here if you like. You can stay stuck here if you like. But this goat has left the building. When Satan brings up your sin and your path, just say, listen, the goat Has left the building. When a family member wants to remind you of your past, listen, the goats has left the building. In other words, we don't have to live with the burden of sin and shame any longer. Because God's love is the love that forgives us and love that redeems us and love that frees us out of the bondage that we're in. And because of the love of God has been taken on, the sin has been taken on by God in Christ and God through Christ, we have an ability now to live free from the burden of sin, free from the burden of shame, free from the burden of guilt. Now, this is important for us because we often have a fear-based way of relating to God and it comes up very subconsciously in us especially when we experience suffering especially when we experience setback especially when things don't go our way we say it to ourselves when we're looking for a parking spot on Queens Boulevard and we can't find a parking spot and you go what did I do God is judging me I didn't pray yesterday I didn't read the Bible. This is just God. You get sick. All of a sudden, oh, it was because I sinned. This is why it's happening. You lost your job. Oh, it's because I haven't been going to church. That's the problem. That's the reason. We have a fear-based way of relating to God. And so if something goes wrong, we often, the default mode for us many times is just we blame God, we blame ourselves and hold God responsible for putting us through this trouble because we deserve it. That's a fear-based way of relating to God. If If something bad happens to me, it is God who is judging me. And so we live under this pressure of guilt all the time. Live under this pressure of the weight of our sin, crushed by it. Not knowing that it is the Father who's always looking at you with eyes of love. That certainly our sin becomes, God has somehow in the sin wired the consequence of sin in it. And so certainly you do something bad, you, there's consequences to your sin. That's one thing. It's another to say you did something bad and now God is judging you. That's another way of seeing it. And so we have a relationship with God often that is fear-based, which, which leaves us under the weight of sin, crushed by it, weighed down by it, anxious because of it. This is why John Calvin, famous Reformed theologian, says that we must above all remember this substitution lest we tremble and remain anxious throughout our lives in fear of God's judgment. God has already taken on our judgment in Christ. He's saying you're free to go. You are released from it. He's already taken on Your judgment. And so, in the substitutionary love of God, what we find is there is a beautiful exchange that takes place. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. Look at the exchange. It's not just that Christ dies as our substitute, He now substitutes His life for ours. Jesus takes our alienation in exchange for a home in God. He takes our bondage in exchange for freedom. He takes our condemnation in exchange for righteousness. He takes our sickness in exchange for healing. He takes our rejection in exchange for his welcome. We don't have to live under the burden and weight of sin any longer. He's already taken it on himself. And this becomes the ground of everything we do. Why can we pray with confidence? Because he's taken our sin. Why can't we rest? Because he's taken our sin. Why can we have peace and joy? Because he's taken our sin. Your identity is no longer connected to the burden of sin. Your identity is now rooted in the love of God. And when this becomes our perspective, we begin to see our failures and our sin in a new way. Let me try to explain how this has happened to me in recent days. I've shared in the past that my genogram, my family story, and we all have a a genogram at New Life that we talk about that we have been shaped by our parents and our grandparents. And we have scripts that we live into, ways of life that we live. And I've mentioned in the past that Because of my particular experiences in the family that I grew up in, there are plenty of positive legacies that I've received from my parents and grandparents and extended family, and there are some negative legacies that I've received from my parents and my grandparents and extended family. And one of the consequences of the negative legacies that I've received from my family is this idea that I have to hold it all together because there were moments in my family's history that I would see a lot of breakdown, and me being the eldest of five, and when I was 10 and 11 and 12 years old, I would see a lot of disorientation, a lot of fragmentation, a lot of drama, and I would be the person to have to hold things together. And so what begins to happen, when you live a kind of life at that, at 10 and 11 and 12 years old, you get scripts formed in your psyche. You get scripts like, don't, Make a mistake. Why? Because there's plenty of mistakes around you. And if you make a mistake, you're just contributing to the problem even more. And so don't make a mistake. Don't get angry. Because I only could correlate anger with dysfunction. Don't get sad. I only correlated sadness with problems. Hold everything together. If you don't hold it all together, this whole thing is going to collapse. These are the scripts that I lived with in my life. And these are scripts that Jesus slowly but surely has had to kind of exercise out of me, and it's taken years to do this. In the past few months, there have been moments where a failure was just apparent to me. I made a mistake. As a pastor, I made a wrong decision. Someone is confronting me about an error that I made, a weakness of mine, an area where I don't have it all together. And instead of just saying, you know what, thank you, I really appreciate that, I'm gonna learn from it. That's a really mature way of responding to it. Instead, what begins to happen is on the outside I say that, but on the inside I have my own story. And what begins to happen is I go into what's called a pit. And I've named it that once a month I see a therapist as part of my spiritual formation. And I was working with my therapist on whenever I experience weakness and whenever I experience failure, whenever something is highlighted that I made a mistake, I go down this hole. He said, let's call it it the pit. I go down a pit. It's just a bad place where I have thoughts about myself, where I've accomplished a whole lot of things here, but I can't focus on what I've accomplished. All I can think about is the ways that I've messed up and the ways that I've sinned, and the ways that of my weaknesses, and how people perceive me and how I perceive myself. And so the therapist was helpful in saying two things to me. one thing in particular, and I sense God say another to me. He said, whenever you go into the pit, you usually you're there alone by yourself. And it's usually, I'm in my head for a few days, and then I come out of it, but it takes a few days for me to come out of it. But he says, I want you to do a, a counter instinctual act. I want you, first of all, whenever you feel like you're going into the pit, to talk to your wife about it, to, to, to just say, I'm about to go into the pit. Now, typically, I deal with my own pain by myself. He said, I want you to do something counter I want you to just to say, honey, I'm about to, I feel like I'm going into a pit right now, and I just need to process this out loud so that I don't go too deep into it. And so there was one moment. He get, but the second thing that I sense in my time with prayer out of that conversation with the therapist was God saying, I want you to meditate on the cross in addition to talking to your wife, I want you to meditate on the cross. I want the cross to be your identity. I want the cross of Jesus to be yourself, yourself your source of self-understanding. I want the cross of Jesus to be the place where you understand who you are, that you are deeply loved by God. And in, and in meditating on the cross in my times of silence, and meditating on the cross in my times of prayer, I have sensed God say to me, you don't have to go to the pit because I've already gone to the pit for you. I've already gone to the deepest places of human existence, and I went there so that you don't have to taste your own death as it were. I substituted my life for you. Look at the cross. Your identity is not based on your failures, Your identity is not based on your mistakes. Your identity is not based on your sin. There is a new identity that you have. I went to the pit so that you don't have to go to the pit. And this is God's word to all of us today. When we wallow in our sin, when we wallow in our weaknesses, when we wallow in our mistakes, God is saying, I have gone to the deepest and darkest places of sin so that you don't have to go there as well. See how much I love you. Look at the cross. Look at the way that I've demonstrated my love to you. And as I've been reflecting on this passage here, and as I've been reflecting Isaiah 53, I came across this wonderful sermon from a, a church father in 180 AD, a man by the name of Melito of Sardis. And he gets to the core of it, and I just want to read this portion of the sermon to you to fill us with hope, to fill us with encouragement, to let us know that God loves us with a substitutionary kind of love. Listen to these words. He says, when the Lord has clothed himself with humanity... And had suffered for the sake of the sufferer and had been bound by, for the sake of the imprisoned and had been judged for the sake of the condemned and buried for the sake of the one who was buried. He rose up from the dead and cried aloud with this voice. Who is he who condemns with me? Let him stand in opposition to me. I set the condemned man and woman free. I gave the dead person life. I raised up the one who has been entombed. I am the one who destroyed death and triumphed over the enemy. Therefore, come all families of human beings. You who are defiled by sins and receive forgiveness for your sins. For I am your forgiveness. I am the Passover of your salvation. I am the lamb which was sacrificed for you. I am your ransom. I am your light. I am your savior. I am your resurrection. I am your king. I am leading you up out to the heights of heaven. I will show you the eternal father. I will raise you up with my right hand. We can live because he died. We can have joy because he suffered. He is the great substitute. The punishment that brought us our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Can you say amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray together. Amen. The substitutionary love of God. God's saying, you don't have to go into the pit. I've already been there. You don't have to sit under the burden of sin. I've already taken it for you. I've already offered a way forward. And faith is simple trust that God can bear our sin and bear it away. Faith in Jesus is a simple trust in God that he has gone to the deepest and darkest places of human existence so that I don't have to go there. That I can live with the fullness and the abundance of life in God. And so I wonder today, what are the sins that are weighing you down? What is the weaknesses that have you captive? We are invited to live a life of joy and peace because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in his substitutionary love. What's the shame that's holding you back? What's the sin that's kept you stuck? God loves you with a substitutionary kind of love. Lord Jesus, when we look at the cross, we see the horror and the beauty The extent to which you've gone to give us life. And Lord, the simple invitation is for us to receive that life. To rejoice in what you've done. That you carry our sins. You bear our sins and you bear it away. And so, Lord Jesus, give us a fresh revelation of your grace in the deepest part of our being. May we see ourselves differently, see you differently, see ourselves as one, one's loved by God. And may that change the way we live in the world. We sing to you now words of worship and praise and of gratitude. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, let's all stand, let's sing together. The good news of Christianity, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the cross... Is that you don't have to be crushed by the weight of sin. You don't have to be crushed by it. And the truth is, if you are not in relationship with Jesus Christ, there is no hope but to be crushed in your sins. He is the only one who can bear our sins. Another degree is not going to fix it. Another job is not going to fix it. More money is not going to fix it. Getting married is not going to fix it. You will not deal with the sin problem by getting a little bit better. You need a power outside of yourself to lift you up out of it. And here's the reality. It's not just people who are not Christians who are crushed by the weight of their sins. What begins to happen as well is day by day, although Christ has forgiven us, those who belong to him and say yes to him, somehow we lose our way somehow we we go astray and even though jesus says i've already taken your sin somehow as it were we kind of take it back from him and we live at least he's taken it from us but we live as if he didn't and we live way down burdens under the weight of our sin and yet jesus and his grace and his love says you don't have to live this way there is joy, there's freedom, there's abundance, there's peace, there's life, there's love. And one of the ways that we enter in that reality is by looking to the cross. And one of the ways we receive that is by the work of prayer. And so I want about our prayer team to come to my left. We have a Lord's table to my right. I believe when we pray for one another that there is a release of the Holy Spirit's power to give us a better revelation of who Jesus Christ is and what we need more than anything else some of you are saying I need revelation for to know what to do next with my life I need revelation to know should I do this or that should I go there or here what we desperately need revelation about is who God is and who God has been revealed in the person of Jesus and so the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes first and foremost to see Jesus that's what we need and then we need to ask and when we pray for one another there is a release of the spirits power so that we could see Jesus a little bit clearer in his grace and his love and his forgiving sacrificial substitutionary love for us and so for whatever need you have maybe you're crushed by your sins today way down God wants to lift you up God wants to set you free God wants to give you joy our prayer team is here And we have Tom, one of our elders, who's going to offer the bread and the cup to you as well. And when we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, we are reminded of the extent to which Jesus Christ demonstrates his love for us. The cross of Christ is not just the symbol of our salvation, it's the pattern for our lives. And when we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, we're saying, Lord, in the same way that you have loved me, may I love the world now. May I live with a substitutionary love in the world so that others may come To know of your saving power and your saving grace. And so, whether you need to receive prayer or whether you need to come to the table, God's arms are wide open for you. And so, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. Walking out here knowing that the love of God has always been for you, He knew you before the foundation of the world. And he's called you, and he's sanctified you. And he's called you to be the people of God, demonstrating the love of God. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you, and may he keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, fully trusting in the substitutionary love of God, And may that love so transform you. May that love redirect your perspective when you fail. May that love give you hope and joy and peace. And may that love be the thing that compels you to love the world with a deep sacrificial love as well. I bless you all today in the strong and the beautiful, in the substitutionary love and name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen.